The chair for this session is the Honorable Molly Williamson, who's been one of the most versatile public servants uh, focused on this part of the world, the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world, uh, of any in Washington. Only one other esteemed American uh, leader in the executive branch, I think, has held more high-ranking positions in numerous different cabinet positions, and that was the late Elliot Richardson. So we're talking about Ms. Williamson having served in the Department of Energy, uh, the Department of Commerce, the Department of State, and the American Consulate General uh, in Jerusalem, having both uh, Arabic and Hebrew. So we speak of this region sometimes in terms of two kinds of, of oil, turmoil, and that other kind. This session is about that other kind, Molly Williamson. Thank you so much, John, and, and uh, thank you to the National Council. It's, uh, it's a great honor to be included once again uh, in this annual Policymakers Conference. Uh, this is, uh, this is a, a time of uh, great import and opportunity, and uh, I'm delighted to see uh, the organization and, and the industry uh, looking so responsibly at these important issues. In 2008, right around September of 2008, the world was consuming at historic, unprecedented levels 86 million barrels a day of oil. That was unprecedented. We had in the ensuing two years, 2009, 2010, economic contraction of global and significant proportions, bringing down global consumption of petroleum and petroleum products to 82 million barrels a day. And today, we have already exceeded the historic levels of, uh, of 2008. We are at already more than 87 million barrels a day as a planet. That's extraordinary. And we are looking at very different degrees, very varying degrees of economic recovery uh, for, for a great many in, uh, in Asia, and in particular that's China and India. It's what recession? And for, uh, for the West, we are looking at uh, Europe struggling to figure out which way it wants to bail uh, its, uh, its uh, constituent members out. And we are looking ourselves at continuing stresses and strains. According to all projections, this planet will remain heavily dependent on petroleum and, and petroleum products well into the second half of this century. We have additionally some unanticipated uh, um, demand added through the results of the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe in Japan causing a ripple effect where countries all over the world uh, and most particularly uh, vocal within uh, Europe, people are walking back from nuclear-generated uh, uh, electricity. That amounts to a global impact, if people follow through, a global impact of 14% of electricity the planet now uses generated by nuclear. That means if they're walking away from it, they're going to go to other other forms of generation for electricity. Those will overwhelmingly be the traditional hydrocarbons uh, the, the planet knows as viable alternatives. We are looking at a part of the world in which 40% of the world's oil transits three large port, uh, uh, transit points, the Babel Mandeb, the Straits of Hormuz, and the Suez Canal. I can't, I can't overemphasize the importance of these transit points 
to global uh, energy and economic security. The United States has enjoyed energy relations with this part of the world characterized by mutual respect, mutual interest, shared commitment to stable markets even in times of conflict and this is a region that has known conflict committed to a healthy marketplace being maintained even under the most uh, uh, contentious circumstances our panel today explore, explores both states of play and projected and potential real and potential partnerships to ease some of these pressures and promote smooth transitions to greater efficiencies, exploring innovation, touching on visions from the region, including King Abdullah's University for Science and Technology and the United Arab Emirates uh, Mazdar Initiative, promoting environmentally responsive, uh, responsible and responsive technologies, we have the opportunity to, uh, to welcome uh, industry perspectives and analyses. Uh, first, uh, with our first speaker, Jay Pryor from Chevron. Uh, no stranger here. I know you, you all know him from uh, earlier conferences. We're lucky uh, to have him again. And the, uh, the bios on all of our speakers are, are in your uh, brochure, so I'm not going to go into them uh, in great detail. We're particularly lucky, though, with the fact that all of our panelists are real experts. You know them all from other uh, uh, conferences as well. Uh, with Jay, we are looking at um, someone not only uh, uh, trained in uh, petroleum engineering, but also very experienced globally, not just this part of the world, but also Asia, also Africa, also uh, the former Soviet Union. Uh, he's had a leadership role in establishing the Center for Sustainable Energy Efficiency at the Qatari uh, Science and Technology Park. We're grateful uh, to have uh, his views. He will be followed by Dr. Franson, Herman Franson, uh, whom you also know from previous uh, experience. Not only is he the president of the uh, International Energy Associates. He's also been associated with um, Middle East consultants, the Yamani Center in London. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, on Energy. He's been uh, more than a decade an advisor to the Sultanate of Oman. He's been a liaison for um, uh, the uh, non-OPEC uh, oil-producing countries, and he was the chief economist uh, at the International Energy Agency headquartered in Paris. Also very lucky to have Dr. Franson. And uh, to um, uh, explore... Uh, some of the exciting innovations coming out of uh, this region. We are lucky to have Randa Fahmi Hudom, president of uh, Fahmi Hudom International, uh, a long-standing expert uh, with both uh, executive and legislative uh, branches of the government uh, and having served as an advisor to both the uh, departments of state and departments of energy. Um, this is, this is going to be meaty. Um, but it is also the case that this is a serious range of issues. Uh, we will um, uh, try to leave room for questions. You all know the protocol. There are papers, little note cards at each desk, uh, and um, those note cards will be uh, carried uh, up to us, and we'll, we'll be able to, to do that. I'm very mindful of the fact that this is the last panel before lunch, no speaker wants to be in the way between his group and lunch. So we're going to be brutal on time. Thank you very much, and I first turn this over to Jay Pryor of Chevron. Well, thank you, Molly. I'm honored to join my distinguished colleagues in addressing the prospects for energy. At a time when we're seeing significant changes in the world, and particularly in the Middle East. In this area, the ties of trust that our industry has developed 
offer promise for strengthening relationships generally. The ways that people in the energy sector are linked together, their manner of working together, and the way we've come together around solutions to meet energy needs all provide a great model for greater independence. As we face many dramatic and drastic changes in the region, I think the wise strategy for people of goodwill would be to draw more closely together. Today our topic is energy dynamics, which is a very broad topic. But I want to focus for a few moments on a few elements, including the complex environment we're in in both the economic challenges and the rising energy demand, and how we address this environment through a path forward that relies on sound investment, energy efficiency, technology, and a real commitment to real partnership. Recently, change has been really the only constant. Relationships are being rethought, reformulated, and re-engineered. This trend's global. But some of the most dramatic changes are taking place in the Middle East region. While our focus today is on the Middle East, it's also true that we would have to look far and wide to find a region of the world that isn't having any of these changes. Many of them are experiencing significant stress are undergoing very rapid change. From our Detroit auto industry to California's housing market here in the U.S., and from Germany to Greece in the Eurozone, the global economy has a lot on its plate. But I do see grounds for optimism in the fundamentals behind the basic economic cooperation. Amid change and uncertainty, sound partnerships are providing a compass for commercial relationships, an ugly most of them to move forward despite a challenging external environment. This is especially seen in the energy sector, where significant investment is taking place today. And energy development can be a powerful force generating economic momentum. This is true in the Middle East, and equally so for the United States, where sound energy policies could revive economic momentum. For the Middle East, growth propelled by energy is especially important. For young people under the age of 25 account for more than half of that population. Creating jobs and opportunity are vital for the region's development. The Middle East not only has some of the world's largest energy opportunities, it's also the region with the second fastest energy demand growth behind only developing Asia. Success then will be required for more investment there alone. That's why the region's growing interest in energy efficiency and in advanced energy development from fossil to non-fossil fuels such as solar is so encouraging. Along with fossil fuels, nuclear and renewables, energy efficiency should be viewed as a significant fuel source in the region and in the world. Chevron Energy Solutions, one of our profit centers for my company, has been focused on renewable power and energy efficiency. We've delivered around 30% average savings in energy for education, government, and industrial clients. It's not too much to say that the same is achievable on very much an international national and regional scale. Here in Washington last week, my boss, our chairman, John Watson, made the case for an energy renaissance. And he explained to the Central Energy's transformational power is really around its technology. New application of technology can be a powerful catalyst for innovative solutions that can meet evolving stakeholder expectations and increasing partner needs. The trend has been central in the recent surge in energy production in the Americas. 
In the Western Hemisphere, a host of resources once thought to be out of reach are now being profitably produced. Technology has unlocked major new resources offshore in the ultra-deep water, in reservoirs holding heavy oil, and from shale gas formations within a half hour's drive of downtown Washington, D.C., a region largely, largely abandoned by our industry and its early pioneers nearly a century ago. We're also seeing this trend repeated in our business as technology continues to rewrite conventional wisdom. At one time, the deepwater U.S. Gulf of Mexico was thought to be empty of large remaining reserves, but fields with enormous potential resources were waiting just beneath the heavy salt layer. Advanced 3D imagery allow today's pioneers to unlock the subsalt potential. Brazil has made very similar discoveries in recent years. Like the Gulf of Mexico, vast discoveries remain for those exploring the energy frontiers in the Middle East. Production of difficult resources has great promise there, provided a supportive investment climate is maintained. Cutting-edge technologies can be paired with the most promising resource bases. These factors are leading the Middle Eastern producers to unlock their challenged resources. Saudi Arabia's development of Al-Qaras is one of those such examples. Another is found where the Kingdom and the State of Kuwait share producing interest in the Wafra field in the onshore partition zone. State-of-the-art application of technology requires solid physical framework and Chevron recently extended and amended concessions to produce oil from the Kingdom in the onshore PZ is notable for the long-standing trust on which it depends. We have fostered a talented local workforce that approaches 90% Saudi nationals up to the top leadership, our MD position in the business unit. Within the onshore PZ, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait have produced oil using primary production for 60 years. But the potential resource base that is available using enhanced production methods is much larger. Tapped or trapped within the two largest carbonate reservoirs are roughly 25 billion barrels of heavy oil. Advanced steam flood technologies promise to free that resource, targeting production of about 500,000 barrels a day and recoverable resources of around 6 billion barrels, producing thousands of additional jobs and billions of dollars of revenue for Saudi, Kuwait and the partners. Successful application of this technology could benefit the development of even larger reserves of heavy oil inside Saudi Arabia and elsewhere in the region. Technology being used to unlock challenging resources has great promise in the region, provided a supportive investment climate is continually maintained. In addition to continued development of the region's robust endowment of hydrocarbons, exploration of new sources and methods of energy production, and conservation offers promise. The wide interest across the Middle East in energy efficiency and new sources such as large-scale solar power offers the potential to stretch the region's supplies even further. Beyond the important contribution the Middle East will make to a growing global economy, we hope to see the pragmatic, cooperative shift that makes the energy industry possible replicated more broadly. The Arab term sharaka is called for especially here, a sense of togetherness that can last for decades because it's grounded on a solid foundation of trust and true partnership. Occasionally this concept is erroneously regarded by some in the West is a much more casual sense than is properly due. To uphold the best spirit of that bond, we must both be wise and determined. 
At Chevron, we accept the wisdom and the belief wholeheartedly in the Arabic proverb. Mahaman, yes be dead, yet numdi kumdima, which in English is the same as saying, we can go forward if we go forward hand in hand. The approach to partnership is a core principle for us at Chevron. We must make wise decisions that build trust while remaining determined to take the steps that are in the best interest of our long-term relationships. Let us all hope that those are decisions which our leaders will make in the days ahead. Thank you very much. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to first thank John and the Council for inviting me again to speak at this important event. As I said last year, John, I think you are one of the very few, if not the only, place where you can have a real honest discussion on Middle East and Middle East policy. And I think Ambassador Freeman's excellent uh, keynote this morning uh, showed that again. Uh, as a person who travels an awful lot in the region, I'm leaving again tonight <laughs> for the region, uh, I unfortunately share his views, uh, uh, which are not, not, not too encouraging, I, I, I fear. Uh, but there are a lot of things we can do, and inshallah one day we will, we will change our policies and a more realistic view towards the region. As far as the energy is concerned, energy issues, uh, I will make a couple of observations that a lot of things are changing, but also a lot of things remain the same. Uh, oil is still more than 35%, about 38% of primary energy in the world, has been so for a long time. It was at its peak just over 50% in, in the early 1970s when oil was $1 a barrel. And in that period, you know, the period immediately after the Second World War, oil was an American fuel. Half of the oil was produced in the United States. Half of the oil was consumed in the United States. And the seven sisters, the main companies, including Chevron, uh, plus the stepsister Total, controlled practically the entire international oil industry. At that time, the producers would get a fraction of the $1 a barrel that was at that time the price of oil, and Europe and America benefited, now Europe and I would say uh, Japan benefited to re get their economies going after the Second World War on an ocean of cheap oil. Japan in 1950 consumed as much oil as Luxembourg today. And Western Europe at that time consumed one, just over one million barrels a day, all of Western Europe. So this cheap oil that was discovered in Middle East and North Africa made it possible for Europe to blossom and get rid of dirty coal and replace it with what at that time was considered to be a very clean fuel and that's oil. Uh, so we have seen uh, major changes in that since uh, what some refer to as the post-colonial period that lasted until the early 70s. In the earlier 70s, strangely enough, it was Colonel Gaddafi who changed the picture first by bringing in two companies, E&I and Occidental, who are willing to give better deals than the Seven Sisters to the producing states. And so uh, that began to change the picture for the uh, uh, producer countries. Uh, this was changed more dramatically uh, with the Arab oil embargo 73 which uh, the panic that it caused uh, created an, uh, an atmosphere that led to a tripling of oil prices and again a similar tripling following the Iran Revolution of 1978. Now that brought about significant changes both for the consumers, all of a sudden they found oil was no longer cheap, they beginning to move to nuclear power, uh, some moved back into coal and natural gas. When the producer countries all of a sudden got massive amounts of money which they used to pay off the concessionaires and take over full control of the resources in their countries. And, uh, they were uh, organized since 1960 
in the uh, OPEC organization, but it's only then in the 70s that OPEC became a powerful organization. So the, uh, they maintained for quite some time the high prices that were uh, caused by the, by the two big events of the 1970s, but within the industrial world, the impact of the high prices was so dramatic that oil consumption began to decline rapidly in the Americas, in Europe and Japan, and in, actually in Japan and Europe it never really recovered back to what it was in the early 1970s. Uh, in the United States, because uh, Jimmy, we didn't really listen to Jimmy Carter very well, and so the good policies that he had enacted on cafe standards were not listened to, and we found an exception, the, the, and that were really the trucks, the SUVs, and they became more than 50% the car fleet, so we were not as efficient as Europe and, the United, and, 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 and Japan. So uh, we went through this period, and OPEC went through this period, learned their lesson that when prices are too high, they lost market share because by 1985 they've lost, they were down to about 50% of their production capacity. And so then they changed policy again. But oil has maintained, when you go backwards, all these changes that took place on efficiency improvements in Europe and Japan in particular, but also here, uh, fuel switching, still uh, in the 1980, oil was 40% of total primary energy in the OECD, and it's still 38% today. And the IEA was all its optimistic forecast for renewables, which um, I think uh, a lot of question marks about it, still sees it at 30% in 2035 in the world of the OECD. So despite all the fuel switching and everything, well, and part of it is that in the OECD, 70% of the oil is used in transportation sector, and it's very, very difficult to find a solution, to find something different uh, than oil for the transportation sector. We use, of course, uh, ethanol, but ethanol is, is not very efficient. It, it only gives you a marginal improvement in global gas uh, reductions than uh, gasoline, and it is an, an inefficient way of, of producing energy, it also pushes prices of corn up, which has an impact on, on, on uh, the food supplies in the entire world. But we have promised by law that we're going to produce as much ethanol by 2022 uh, from uh, other fuels, in other words from non-food sources, than we already have from uh, corn. Now, how, they will, how we will achieve that, I don't know, but it's in the law. Unlikely, though, to achieve it. The other thing that we're concentrating on, of course, is batteries, and hopefully we'll move to electric cars. But today, a battery for a, for a decent-sized car that most of us like to drive is between $15,000 and $20,000 just for the battery. So that's not a very cheap opposition. Maybe China will have a solution, but at the moment we don't. Uh, so we're still stuck with oil, whether we like it or not. And in the 70s, when prices rose sharply and there were geopolitical concerns, Henry Kissinger was uh, able of uh, securing uh, a, 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 the, the states in the, in the Gulf a new, a new uh, kind of a relationship which uh, created uh, affordable oil that we would get in exchange for uh, the um, defense against outside aggressors. Well, that Henry Kissinger's um, arrangement survived the, the Cold War and even survived the whole period uh, of the peace process. Right now, with the events that happened uh, basically since the invasion of Iraq, but particularly since the beginning of this year, that relationship has a very shaky foundation. Uh, I think Jay already talked about all the future prospects for, for demand and for supply. Uh, very interesting in this, in this uh, relationship is that while the, uh, the 7 billion people in this world, because now we're going to have very soon 7 billion people in the world, uh, moving to about over 8 in 2025, 20, 2030, uh, these people, particularly in Asia, if only 15% of them are middle class and enjoying the benefits that we have, 
in transportation and others, you're going to have a continued escalation in the demand for oil, particularly in Asia and other uh, new areas, newly developed areas in the world, and that will continue regardless of whether we continue to cut uh, our uh, demand because of improved efficiencies. And yes, we will, because the policies initiated by both President Bush and by President Obama will dramatically improve the efficiency of American cars, from, certainly from 2015 onward. We will be driving cars like the Japanese and the Europeans, whether you like it or not. But that's, what's in, that's again in the law. So, our consumption will decline, at the very best stabilize, because we have still some population growth, but we are in the midst of a renaissance on the supply side that most Americans haven't even realized. Not only shale gas, but also shale oil. The two formations alone, the Bakken Formation in North Dakota and Eagle Ford in Texas, that could dramatically improve the production of liquids from those areas, and there are many more. Uh, we can import considerable volumes of uh, Canadian uh, liquids from oil sands to the Keystone uh, pipeline, which is still in question. But in other words, the United States has the potential for the first time in a few decades, decades to significantly reduce its import dependence if it wants to and if it Congress in its wisdom will agree with those policies, or the administration in its wisdom will agree to those policies. Europe and Japan cannot. Japan will continue 100% dependent on imported oil. Europe will increase because the North Sea is in decline. So Europe will have to depend more on imported oil and more on imported gas. Well, the United States is basically self-sufficient on gas, thanks to shale gas uh, and coal bed methane. And for oil, we could significantly reduce our dependence. Now, interesting part of that also is related to the Middle East. In other words, when Asia now takes up more than half of Middle Eastern oil and goes into Asian refineries for Asian consumption, Europe is much more dependent on the region than we are, and we now get about 15% of our oil from the region uh, that has been stable for a very long time, but could in fact decline, and I must say could decline. Uh, it will raise questions about is the United States going to continue to be the only one who pays for the massive defense layout in the region in view of our massive uh, budget uh, deficit? This is a big question mark. Or should one expect that those who have an equal interest in sustaining affordable prices and sustaining the current boundaries of the region, that they share in the cost of, uh, uh, of defending these resources? Uh, that's an interesting question, and I don't know whether, whether there is an easy answer for it. In the shorter term, we are now expecting that both Iraq and Libya will uh, be, become major, major new uh, powerhouses in terms of oil production. Right now, the two together produce only about 3 million barrels a day. But if we listen to the, uh, the, the uh, Minister uh, Sherdestani, Iraq has the capability, he says, to produce 12 million barrels a day, and if Libya just goes to what it had before, 1.7, this would be a dramatic increase of production from those two countries in the coming decade. Whether it will happen or not is another matter. I'm not as optimistic about uh, things coming very quickly to, to, uh, to uh, massive improvements in Libya, nor do I believe that Iraq will achieve anywhere near the numbers that they're officially talking about. But even if they would only go from 2.6 to 5 million barrels a day by 2016, it would be a massive improvement over where they are today. The question then becomes, who in the region has an interest in seeing Iraq become an oil powerhouse? If you were sitting in Iran, which cannot increase its production, you probably wouldn't. You want to see the price go higher. If you were uh, Saudi, you don't like to see the challenge of a country that could produce as much as you can. So it's going to be still very interesting to see how, how this will gel in the future. There's another issue I just want to briefly touch on this concern about internal consumption in the Middle East. Can you eat your cake and have it too? The consumption has been rising very rapidly, and if current trends continue, they would have to sharply increase, as a region, their production just to sustain current efforts. Not to increase them, but to sustain them. So what do they have to do? They have to change the pricing practice. They have to start pricing at what 
it really, the fuel really cost and what the natural gas really cost. The only one that has done this but hasn't been noticed in the West was Iran. In December 2010, Iran basically dramatically reduced the subsidies and this year so far, Iran's oil consumption down 10%. Uh, no one else has un until now dared to follow this because it's, of course, highly unpopular. If you're used to uh, very low prices for gasoline, for, for, for fuel, for natural gas, to increase it would mean higher cost for desalinated water, higher cost for electricity, higher cost for everything, and in today's environment that would be very, very tough to do. So this is going to be a very big and, and difficult question for the future. Another one is that uh, we has been touched upon already, the employment issue. The interesting part of the employment issue is that in most Gulf countries, half or more of the people outside the government uh, are actually foreigners. Uh, all the, 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 the construction is done by people from South Indian continent. If these people were to go home tomorrow, there would be zero unemployment. But people who have only a primary or secondary school degree do not want these jobs. Uh, so that's why they bring in people from outside. Part of the reason is also because they're very low price. And a worker on a construction site gets about $150 a month plus room and board. Now you cannot get a local who wants to have a family, wants to get married and children, live on $150. It would be like if we opened the floodgates for immigrants from outside and say, well, you get a passport for two years, you can come here for two years, and we give you $150 a month and we'll put you in the basement, and then you go back home after two years, we would have a very cheap labor force and no American would work anymore, do any menial labor. So this is an issue that can only be solved, I believe, on a GCC-wide basis, to have labor laws that will change this and make it more attractive for local people to take manual jobs. Uh, and even those, uh, many times, people, uh, other jobs, they do not want. So it's very easy for educated people. They easily find jobs, well-paying jobs. But for those without uh, a secondary degree, some even without a primary school education, uh, they cannot get jobs and cannot compete with the South Indian labor. Finally, a word on the, on the Arab Spring. So far, it has already had an impact on, on oil prices. And December, well, last year when we were meeting here, oil prices were around $90 a barrel. They moved up to about $120, and we're talking about Brent, the internationally uh, listed crude, now it's about $108. Now, most of that increase, uh, it's hard to say exactly how much, but certainly much, a very big part of that increase was due to the psychological impact of the Arab Spring when it started in Tunisia and Egypt, and the rest was due to uh, the loss of 1.7 million barrels of very highly valued Libyan crude. Now, if it is 10 to $15 per barrel that this costs, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars to the global economy. That was caused by these events earlier this year. Uh, so, if Libya starts coming back, and if all the optimists are right, and they come back to full capacity sometime by the end of next year, perhaps we, we, this could have some positive impact on, uh, on oil prices, depending on a lot of other issues. But um, this is still has to be seen. Uh, the Western leaders, who only a year ago would be kissing and hugging Gaddafi in order to get nice, uh, juicy contracts, in the oil industry as well as in other industries, now are probably going back to Libya hugging and kissing the new leaders of the country. The question, however, is will the oil industry get a better deal than they got in the past? Because Libya, under Gaddafi, had very tough deals for the oil industry. Whether it was El Badri as the minister or Shokri Ghanem, the deals were tough. They were very good for Libya, but not so good for the industry. Can any Libyan nationalist taking over as Minister of Oil be doing anything other than what was done before? If he doesn't, he will be accused of uh, favoring the foreigners. Uh, we have seen this already in Iraq, where now coming to the fourth case, the real contracts. We knew the contracts that before that appeared that the margins were very small. Now it turns out that some companies had additional contracts which made the rate of return much more attractive. So there are all things you can do. 
Finally, a very brief word about the Arab Revolt. The Arab Revolt, I think it's probably a better word than Arab Spring, though maybe Tunisia may turn out to be a spring, but uh, definitely Yemen is not a spring. Uh, one can to some extent compare this with Europe in 1848, when the ancien regimes of Europe were under pressure, you got a revolution in France, then a revolution, the Habsburg, uh, the Habsburg Empire, in German kingdoms, in Italian kingdoms, uh, but since that revolution, which was played out differently in all these different countries, play, uh, when they happened, it still took decades before all the issues were resolved and European countries finally became modern democracies. So this here too, there are a lot of common themes running through that people want improvements of the socio-economic conditions, but already said, some of them are going to be very, very difficult until there is a mind change. All of them want some changes. When you talk to young people all over the region, they all want accountability, they all want to have a majlis that is elected, they want to have a prime minister who is elected, they want to have a judiciary that is independent from the executive branch, etc., etc. Young people in all those countries speak that same kind of a language. So there's going to be tension unless these issues are resolved. The regional issue already brought up this morning, the fear in some countries of a Shia crescent spreading from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, because uh, Assad has not lost yet, into uh, the Lebanon, is a perceived uh, fear among many in the region that creates what we heard this morning, uh, the potential for, for an arms race. Uh, at the same time, I think U.S. Is, is, is one of the big losers so far of what has happened in part because of the, uh, our policies of the past, as I brought up this morning already, our policies uh, uh, towards Iraq, which created enormous dislocations inside of Iraq and externally upset the, the balance of power in the region quite dramatically. As already was said, the Saudis are very upset about that. The Saudis are also upset that we were so quick in allowing to, have, uh, to see Mubarak dropped. They are very unhappy with our inability to reign in Netanyahu. They are very unhappy about, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, a lot of things that we have and are still doing in the region. And as Ambassador Freeman said, they are going to follow their own policies. They are going to be less dependent in terms of their political and geopolitical uh, policies than they have in the past. On the other hand, I also agree with Ambassador uh, Rosso that uh, uh, the United States has again showed in Libya that we are the only country that can actually deliver when it comes to military power. The U.S. spent half of the, what was expended in Libya of military forces, but not only that. When you really read in the technical magazines, if it hadn't been for U.S. intelligence, for U.S. penetrating bombs, etc., etc., this adventure would not have succeeded as quickly as it did. And that message probably did, did, is, is well noticed everywhere else in the world, that the U.S., when it comes to the military, uh, reigns supreme. So finally, what is the outcome of all this? Well, most oil exports in the Middle East will continue to go to Asia. Uh, Europe will be a secondary, uh, but also still a very important importer of oil. U.S. at the best stable, but we could see falling imports from the region over time. Whether that will shift our interest in the region to some extent at the margin, it's too early to say. There are shifting economic realities. The, 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 the world economy is shifting to the center, has shifted already to Asia. And we see in the Middle East that same reality. People are buying more and more goods and services from, from Asia and, of course, Europe, and, and far less from us. If you take out the defense component, we don't really sell all that much in the region. The question, ultimately, will the flag follow trade? Will Asia become much more engaged in other ways than uh, economics and oil in the region? Uh, could this be speeded up by uh, U.S. Uh, reliance on uh, self-reliance in terms of energy and imports from inside the Americas? We don't know. In other words, there are many, many, many questions at this point and still very few answers. Thank you very much.
Thank you, and thank you, Dr. Anthony and Molly and the panelists today for your wonderful presentations. I think it lays the groundwork for what I'd like to talk about today, and it's a topic that's often not highlighted when you speak about energy interests in the Arab world, and that's renewable energies. I know Jay touched upon it, um, but in order to take a look at renewable energies in the Arab world, I'd like to stop for a minute and take a look at renewable energy here in the United States. When we discuss the topic here in the U.S., it's often in the context of three principles. The first is national security. As we've heard the mantra over and over again from politicians, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign oil as a matter of national security. Sometimes when these politicians feel like being particularly combative, they will say we need to reduce our dependence on Middle Eastern oil, code word, somehow funds from the sale of Middle Eastern oil is in danger to our national security in the United States. When, of course, the facts of the matter are the majority of oil imported into the United States comes from Canada and Mexico. The second theory, and I'll be happy to debate this in the question and answer session because I don't want to go too deeply into it, but the second theory of why renewable energies is good is job creation. As many of you know, the Obama administration announced a stimulus package in the amount of $787 billion, of which a great amount of that went to the Department of Energy to encourage renewable energy programs. And I'm not a big fan of the idea that, indeed, it is creating jobs here in the United States. And finally, but certainly not least, renewable energies are important here because we are good global citizens and because we want to pay homage and respect our environment. Now, it does seem like an oxymoron if you raise the issue of renewable energies in the Arab world, but the reality is it's not. It's a reality that's growing every day in the region. You know, when I worked in the government, there was always this vexing question that politicians put forward. Every time we raise the issue of renewable energy here in the United States, and in the times when I was in the government, the hydrogen fuel cell was the hot issue. Does that drive OPEC crazy? Maybe we can get OPEC to behave if we start talking about renewable energies, and they'll get scared. And then they'll back off, and they'll produce all the oil that we want, and we'll lower the prices here in the United States. The reality is that doesn't happen because many of these OPEC member nations themselves are in robust programs and are developing robust programs of renewable energies. And you might ask why. Again, some of the principles in the Arab world. Why are they developing renewable energies when ostensibly they have a very, very abundant supply of petroleum and gas? The answer is diversification of their economy in deference to, of course, the growing youth population and the need for increased employment in that area. Also, the demands of the more population and the growth of population is going to demand more power generation. And the ways to get power generation are often through renewable energy sources. There's also a need in the Arab world and much belief in conserving the existing resources that they have. So the conservation awareness is certainly there as well. And finally, last but not least, like us, the Arab world shares the desire to be good global citizens in the, in the environment today. So I'd like to bring up seven different examples here today, and I do apologize in advance if I might have forgotten one that, that many of you are particularly involved in or know about, but because of the time constraints, I can only discuss these seven, but we'd be happy to discuss more in the Q&A. Um, the first project I'd like to bring up is the King Abdullah University for Science and Technology. Many of you may know about this new co-ed graduate level university that, ironies of all ironies, happens to be funded and developed by the state-owned Saudi Arabia oil company, and that's Aramco. Within the university itself, they have a variety of studies, but one of them is clean combustion, they are also looking at the Red Sea for science and engineering uh, type new technologies. They're looking at solar and alternative energy in the science and engineering field. And they're also looking at water desalinization and reuse of those water prospects. 
Staying on Saudi Arabia, it was just recently announced that Saudi Arabia inaugurated its first solar power plant. In combination with the Japanese energy company, the, they built the plant on Farasan Island, uh, which is off the Red Sea coast. And interestingly enough, and this goes to the conservation issue, the new solar plant will save about 28,000 barrels of diesel fuel that's normally sent to the island for power generation purposes. Again, staying with Saudi Arabia, but branching out into the broader Islamic world, many of you may uh, be familiar with the Islamic Development Bank. They are based in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, but they are a financial economic development bank that represents their 56 member countries. Those 56 member countries are countries who are members of the Organization of Islamic States. Within the Islamic Development Bank, they recently announced a new $250 million fund for renewable energy projects within their member countries. And that is a critical issue because indeed it will provide many of the financial loans and resources that some of the uh, less developed countries are going to need in this area. Moving on from Saudi Arabia, let's focus on the United Arab Emirates. I'm sure many of you have heard about UAE's Vision 2030, which is a vision for economic development, which includes, of course, the famed Mazdar city in development, which is the future energy city that will um, rely solely on solar and renewable energies with the target of zero carbon, zero waste. Also, another little factoid about the United Arab Emirates, and particularly Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi was chosen out of the whole world for the home of the new International Renewable Energy Agency. And this new agency, of course, will focus on renewable energy. So that's a real coup for uh, the United Arab Emirates and for the renewable energy industry as a whole. Again, staying on the United Arab Emirates, many of you are aware that two years ago, the United Arab Emirates launched and announced the bidding for 14 new nuclear power plants. And interesting enough, Molly, you mentioned uh, Fukushima. This was prior to the Fukushima disaster. That being said, they're full steam ahead in the UAE. And in fact, I uh, read today that they are just uh, groundbreaking on four of the new nuclear power plants. Now, what's interesting about this particular project, I have to say, is that the United Emirates did this project and launched this project extremely politically smart. What they did is they reached out to the global society, giving people a heads up that they were intending to do this. They put a plan together a step-by-step -step plan about how they were going to develop this. They allowed and they are continuing and will continue to allow inspectors from the International Energy Agency, um, International Atomic Energy Agency, excuse me. Um, they also are being very wise about the spent fuel that will be created from this project. And also, they set up a nuclear regulatory commission, which is a new thing for the United Arab Emirates, to somehow you know, mirror other nuclear regulatory commissions around the world. So I say that, I think you can guess, in contrast to another particular country who insists on developing their nuclear industry not so smartly. Next, moving on to Qatar. Of course, Qatar is known in the Arab world and in the Gulf itself for its innovative and new ways of everything in that region. But one key element of renewable energy, again, is the financing. So Qatar, and this year again they held a summit, holds a summit every year that's focused on alternative energies. It's called the Alternative Energy Investment Summit. It's the ultimate gathering of 100 hand-picked investors. So they are vetted before they come and they're hand-picked to focus on particularly pre-qualified investment opportunities in the renewable energy sector. And it's a match, if you will. It's, you know, some I like to compare it somewhat similar to the Clinton Global Initiative where people come and pledge their support for a variety of, of issues. In this case, it's solely and purposefully dedicated to alternative energies. Also something that Jay, I know you have worked on, is Qatar has the Science and Technology Park, which is focused on 
development of uh, uh, technologies in 60 different solar areas, as well as other technologies. Now, certainly beyond the Gulf countries, we have Morocco. And I love to use Morocco as an example because Morocco has a very, and has had for a very long time, a healthy sector in the solar area. It's one in which Morocco has been focused on for years and very much wants to continue to develop that potential in, in Morocco. Uh, but one certainly can't ignore what I call now the Arab awakening countries, um, and that would be Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt. You have a situation where, of course, Egypt has a healthy supply of gas, and Libya has oil and gas as well. But in, in deference to the term Arab Spring, I think Tunisia got its liberation in January, Egypt got its liberation in February, and Libya got its liberation in October. None of that was spring. Um, I'd like to use the terminology Arab awakening because it focuses, it actually comes from a 1938 book written by George Antonios. Many of you are familiar with that book. It talked about the, um, the, the, the loss and Arabization of Palestine at the time. Um, but the, the term Arab awakening, I think, really captures the spirit of what people want in the region now. And certainly from my travels in the region, in Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt, they are extraordinarily interested in developing their solar energy and their wind energy. And that's something that, of course, is going to take two things, technology advancement and financial resources. So in conclusion, I personally see a very, very bright future for renewable energies in the Arab world because of three critical elements. One is the financial support and resources that many of these countries have and are willing to invest in renewable energies. Two is the willingness to dig down deep on the research level to get that technological know-how in order to move forward in the renewable energy field. And third is certainly the will and the need, particularly in these Arab awakening countries, to diversify their existing economies into this new and very hopeful future for renewable energies. Thank you very much. Thank you to all our panelists. Uh, I have several questions uh, here on nuclear, and in particular um, uh, to Rhonda, the question of um, how well nuclear, civil nuclear uh, uh, power plans are progressing throughout the GCC countries. Uh, what, if uh, uh, any, is the extent of U.S. Uh, company involvement uh, in, in that? Um, for uh, Dr. Franson, a question of the... Um, uh, issue of subsidies, the heavy continued subsidy for fuel throughout uh, the countries for their internal consumption. Uh, how long can that uh, continue uh, and uh, how can that make room for solar uh, innovation become uh, competitive? Uh, and uh, for all our panelists, a uh, uh, question about uh, the potential impact of uh, shale, oil, and gas uh, in the marketplace, uh, especially given growing demand from Asia. So why don't we start with you, Rhonda, and then uh, move to the other questions. Sure. Um, the, the development of um, civilian uses of nuclear energy is always, uh, as you know, a critical issue from a national security perspective. And like, let's be blunt here, the Iranians have caused a great deal of angst throughout the world because of the way that they have gone around it and gone through it, in essence, extremely combative, um, not very transparent, um, and creating difficulties for everyone else in the region who wants to develop it. That being said, I believe that the United Arab Emirates can serve as the model for other GCC countries who wish to develop nuclear uh, uh, power plants, certainly. Um, and there has been a desire by some of these other members of the GCC to do so, but knowing what the sensitivities are. Um, the big issue of the, as I talked about, reprocessing of uranium, uranium enrichment process is always a key issue. 
But as long as these countries move forward, as I mentioned, in a transparent fashion with discussions around the world of the key players, um, I can't see why there wouldn't be uh, a successful venture for those who wish to move in that direction. As far as U.S. companies' involvement in it, certainly um, we have two or three big companies here in the United States who are involved in this industry. I do know that in the UAE bidding process, um, it, as it moved forward, there was American content on all three teams. The team that ended up winning were the South Koreans, Capco, and the U.S. content on that team was Westinghouse Toshiba, even though Westinghouse, as many of you know, is majority owned by the Japanese, there's still a very strong presence, in fact, in my home state of Pennsylvania, and often look at many of the uh, materials are used and made in the United States. So it portends, I think, a bright future for particularly American companies who are, are invested in or involved in that particular industry. On the uh, question of subsidies, the subsidies for both oil and for natural gas, uh, most of the gas in, uh, in the Gulf was in Qatar and in Iran, most of the other gas is largely what they call associated gas that comes up with oil production. So when you don't produce the oil, you don't get the gas. Most of the countries are, uh, have a very tight situation natural gas, but they're still selling it at very low prices. Until recently, you could get gas for a project for less than a dollar per million BTUs. So that's the equivalent of six, seven dollar oil. Uh, there are many American and other companies that are wanting to go for what is called tight gas, deep gas. It's much more expensive. You may have to pay three to four, four to five dollars per million BTUs. But uh, how do you sell that gas in this kind of a subsidized environment? The same is true for oil. Ramco studies, as well as uh, by the Spain Abdullah uh, University, have indicated that if the current rate of consumption of liquids continues in Saudi Arabia, they could go from 2.8 million barrels a day today to 8 million barrels a day around 2030. And that would really eat into the export potential unless you dramatically increase your production. So they really know that they have to do something. The question is, when are they going to do it, and what is going to replace the, uh, the oil? I think I'll take the uh, shale gas issue, and I think uh, potential impact on shale. I, I think if you think about shale, both light oil shale and gas shale, one important thing to recognize is shale is the source rock for most hydrocarbon that has been produced today. So the source rock is around all over the world. So what you're doing is using new technology to bring the cost down to produce something that people know exists on a worldwide basis. That's the real issue. So when you talk talking about development of shale, when you start looking at the facts very closely, it's a very extensive resource. I know in the U.S., we talk about 100 TCF of gas. Uh, as a petroleum engineer, we've always been very conservative on estimates of resource. Uh, my first year in the industry in 1979, I was told by some of the geologists and engineers, what are you going to do after eight or ten years because we're going to be out of business. I've been here 33 years, and we've got more today than when I started. So I think you can look at those estimates as quite conservative. So, but the potential impact is really around the market and around where do you develop it and how does it impact the overall global situation. The U.S. has been endowed where currently today 100 percent of our gas is uh, produced uh, domestically. So we don't need to import any gas. There's still some LNG coming into the country and other things uh, from Canada, gas being imported. But you could produce 100 percent of the gas from the country. There's other parts of the world, especially the Middle East. When you think about shale being a source rock for oil, uh, there's plenty of shale in the Middle East as well. So I think over a period of time, you'll start to see more and more gas uh, developed in the Middle East around shale, but it's going to have to deal with some of the issues that uh, Herman talked about relative to subsidies and pricing and, and infrastructure. The reason the U.S. popped so quickly with shale gas was infrastructure was already here and had been amortized over a long period of time. So it was basically already paid for. 
So it made it very easy to hook up directly to currently existing infrastructure. That's why the development path for shale gas in the U.S. happened so quickly. Thank you very, very much. It was, uh, I, I think you'll all agree that this is a meaty topic, lots of exciting prospects, uh, not only for continued and expanding partnership between the United States and the countries of this region, but also some things for us to plan and, and, uh, and muddle through together, some uh, storms we have to weather through together, um, but a clear uh, potential and determination that we do so with mutual respect and mutual uh, interest to be prevailed. I, I know there are more questions. I've got a good handful of them uh, here. I'm sorry, though, that uh, if we go down that path that I'd be keeping you from lunch. That is something that's a cardinal rule for any speaker not to do. So I encourage you to grab our panelists uh, and uh, chat with them uh, as we um, make space available for uh, lunch preparations. Thank you.